0: Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. For those of you who have been long-term listeners, you know that suicide prevention is a passion of mine. September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, and September 17th is Physician Suicide Awareness Month. And with that, I am going to dedicate the month of September to episodes about suicide prevention and what we can all do to bring those numbers to zero. With that, I want to offer a trigger warning in that. This topic may be difficult for many, and if this is difficult, if you have thoughts of suicide yourself or if you're dealing with a loved one that you're worried about, please seek help. Contact your doctor. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline now, 988 or 1-800-273-8255. You can also use the crisis text line, 741741. Or if the risk is imminent, you can use the emergency room. So with that, I'm going to bring an extraordinarily special guest to the podcast today. Alyssa Gagino has a master's degree from Wayne State University in Detroit in social work and is licensed in macro and clinical social work. She has worked as a social worker for 13 years and focuses on helping at-risk seniors and the disabled. Full disclosure, Alyssa is also my sister, and I am so honored and grateful that she wanted to share her story. She asked if she could do that because she wants to help others who may be struggling. And with that, I will let you listen to our conversation.
1: Hi, Alyssa. How are you? I'm fine, Leah. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, I'm so honored that you'll do this with me. I really appreciate it. And I mean, I know that this is a hard topic for people to talk about, but so important. And I think hearing from folks with lived experience is probably the most powerful tool that we have. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. So before we start, I did want to mention, and I even said it in the introduction, but just to go over it again, is that our conversation we are going to be talking about suicide and suicidal ideation and for any listeners that are out there this may be triggering and if you're having any concerns we would really want you to seek help and there are several options there's the suicide prevention lifeline the 988 and also crisis text 741741 and all that information will be in the show notes but You know, again, if this is something that touches a nerve or really worries you, please, please ask for help. So let's get started. You and I both came from a family that things got scary and sometimes bad, and I think it left a mark and it was hard for us in different ways. I felt a lot of fear and often that I wasn't good enough, and I don't know if that was your experience. Maybe you could say a little bit about that.
1: Well, I was thinking about it earlier and, and what it was like for me is kind of how they always talk about fight or flight. And there was none. Those were not choices. The choices were freeze and, and just take the punishment and get past it and move on and be angry afterwards by yourself or with you. But it was just part of our family dynamic is. To have that kind of treatment over and over and over again. When we're young. And it was more like, this is what's normal for our family. Yeah. No way out. No. And I
0: don't think really until, I don't know, certainly got older that we even had any language for what that whole thing about trauma, about what that is and how it affects people. And I think you said it really well, sort of the freeze, you know, you just internalize a lot of that. And how you feel about yourself and how you experience the world. For me, it was trying to be the best little girl I could be. That was what I felt could keep me safe and being really good at school. That was my uh, my strategy.
1: Well, I spent a lot of time at my friend's house mm-hmm. with their periods. Yeah. When I thought normal.
0: Yeah. Well, when you were a teenager and then later in college, things got a lot harder. And I know that you sought help at an early age. And I think that's one thing I really admire about you is that you've always reached out for help, but sometimes the help that you needed wasn't always there. The diagnosis wasn't quite right. The medications, there was a lot of trial and error. So what was that like?
1: Well, I first went at 15 to a psychologist. And the reason I went though, and I had been what I would think now was pretty visibly depressed and acting out and and romantic at times. And they um, never sent me to a psychiatrist. They just, you know, it was about to talk. But the reason I went, my mother or our mother sent me because I was overweight. And so that must be a problem. So in a way, even though that wasn't a very great reason to go, seeing that I wasn't that overweight, it was a good way to get me into the system. But at the same time, it was not a good experience. I got a lot of shame and blame from the psychologist who told me at one point that I had a poor prognosis. And at 16, that's not a great thing to hear. So I, I went to the vent, or him, and I was in a groove, an adult group. For a while. Anyway, and then I moved to Texas. I wasn't getting along with mom and dad. You were already in school. And I was there for a few months, and it really was, it was, it was probably better, but not great. So I just, a lot of acting out and risky behaviors and things like that. So it did get bad. And I then went to Michigan State for a while and went to their therapy sections there or their counseling center. And Not great. It was a lot of, I think it was a lot of very young, untrained, (laughs) or very little little trained counselors. And they were nice, but it wasn't really the greatest therapy for me. And then I wasn't diagnosed until I was 28. So I went through my undergraduate school at Wayne State. And I, I did well when I transferred from Michigan State to Wayne State. I, I did well. And I was I was the for a while, and good meaning I wasn't going off the or doing things that were super dangerous. And then later on, I moved to California in my late 20s or Arizona, then California. And I saw a psychiatrist and diagnosed me by fuller, too. So that's kind of my first diagnosis. And it was the first medication. There was no bipolar medication. It was just, it was an atypical kind of antidepressant. And I don't think it helped. (laughs) It didn't really help a lot. I was really, you know, out of control in a lot of ways. Well, and
0: I appreciate, you know, one of the things, again, is that you continued to seek care, which, you know, that takes a lot of impetus, especially like a college youth. To be able to seek, you know, go to a counseling center and then go. And like you said, it was they were nice, but they just didn't have what you needed and couldn't offer relief. And so you kept trying, and that probably meant several different kinds of medications, is my guess. And I think that's the experience for a lot of families. And I certainly in patients that I've taken care of, you know, oftentimes we do have to try different medications to try and find the right regimen and to pair it with the right therapy, skilled, trained folks that really understand. And I think. Now, the whole kind of feel of trauma-informed care, it just sheds a whole lot of light on the fact that instead of what's wrong with you, the what's happened to you. Like, let's take that into account. And, you know, you mentioned about being sent to therapy because you were overweight. Well, now we know, too, that one of the things that happens when people have been traumatized, sometimes we do struggle with weight issues. You know, you're looking for ways to self-soothe and food kind of fits that bill. It works until it doesn't,
1: right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, and other, you know, substance abuse are you know, just taking big risks and not caring. That was what kind of happened in high school. And so it was um, that I just became... I went from getting a lot of attention as a kid dad, from dad to no attention. When we moved to Michigan, he was really excited about a job and then the job was changed. And he, I think, got very depressed because it wasn't what he wanted. And he just withdrew. So I got zero attention. And then I just became acting out all over the place. I don't know if it was for attention or if it was just out of control, but, you know, just kind of floundering and treading water, I guess, for a long time. Yeah. Just keeping my head above water and not having a lot of goals, I guess, sort of, I think I'll go to college. Oh, I think I'll go here. I'll go here. I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I mean, you
0: were pretty resilient. I mean, even when things got really hard, I just think of you always kind of landing on your feet. And I mean, you were much more out in the world than I was, I think because I was scared. And so I'm not a big risk taker. And I think I admired that about you, that you were willing to take chances, you know, to move to other cities, to try a job. And if it didn't feel like a good fit, that you were willing to try something else, you know, and I think that takes a lot of courage and bravery, you know, that it is something that I admire about you. No, thank
1: you. Um, I think I've had about 30 jobs. (laughs) (laughs) I I was fired from nine of them. (laughs) But I know I did try a lot of things. That's for sure. I've had a very mixed career and I'm I'm very happy in my career now. But it took a long time to get there. Yeah. But you're right. I, I didn't give up. I just, I don't understand how people don't keep trying that. It's hard for me to under, it was hard for me to understand that. It just, we just keep going and going and going and you keep trying and trying. Um, but I got to a point where I just couldn't try anymore. Yeah. I, I, was, I was too tired. I was exhausted.
0: Well, and I'm wondering, I know that there have been some clinicians that have made a difference um, that did kind of listen to you and heard you and, you know, maybe it wasn't perfect and every, you know, there were still lots of bumps in the road, but What made the difference in the clinicians, the physicians, people that could hear you or you could connect Uh, with?
1: Well, there was one, probably the best psychiatrist I've had was in Kalamazoo. It was when psychiatrists still had a full hour, hour and 15 minutes with you. And it was great. She was a great listener, really insightful, very kind Really smart. And I always, I just always really liked her a lot and and thought she wasn't judgmental and she wasn't critical and she wasn't not paying attention. She was right there, really into the mindful thing, if you will. She was right there, very present.
0: I think that connection, that ability to make you feel like you're the only person in the room is is a real gift. and mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, I know who you're talking about, and she is brilliant and um really one of the kindest clinicians that I know who has had compassion for some of the patients that I've seen that have had really, really hard time. and so I greatly admire her and and she yeah. was smart about medication too, um you know, for the most part. And I was gonna say then you know, what you said, that sort of, I just got tired after a while. And I think that's, at some point, it felt like a suicide was the option. But how have you risen from that place?
1: Well, it's a bottoming out for sure. It took me a long time after my attempt to really think clearly and logically and all the executive functions coming back. It, It took a while. And I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't read very well. I couldn't, I mean, not that I couldn't read. I just had the, it was too much information. Computers were too much information. I did just, I worked, but I did not do those things for probably six months. And then, and I didn't socialize a whole lot except with like safe people. And at the same time, I was going through a divorce and in the same house. So it was very tumultuous. But it gave me a lot of strength. And I, I, I got that from friends, from friends and family that were supportive. They were my foundation. I may not have had all the tools for my, you know, that I could come up with, but I knew how to reach out to other people after that. And they were great. I mean, I had so much support from my family, from you guys, and from cousins and friends all over the place. And I, I wasn't shy about telling friends what happened. They all felt badly, of course, but they were supportive and were loving. Yeah. And I think that's probably of all the tools. That's the one. I mean, but I did have this kind of, it was manic. I'm not sure, but I all of a sudden I <laughs> felt like, Oh my God, that was like the worst thing in the world, getting a divorce or feeling in that situation or have, and then having an attempt to all of a sudden feeling like I could do whatever I wanted. And I thought, I'm going to be a physician. I'm going to be a doctor. And then you were like, well, <laughs> yeah, you're 40, something years old. And then I'm like, okay, physician to assistant. And then I took chemistry and math again after years of being out of school. And I'm like, okay, let's relook at that. So I am, mean, um, but I felt like I could do anything. And I and had a lot of, it, it was something was really empowering. I don't know really much, but when I was rewired, it went well.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, the the hospital stay, you know, maybe I don't know all the experiences in the hospital. You know, I do remember like a family meeting. I felt like I felt like it was pretty supportive.
1: It was. And although it's funny, I had a lot of visitors from our family and from, um, you know, friends. And but it did seem everybody was so nervous talking to me. Like as if they would say something, I would fly off the handle or do myself in, although there's no way of doing that in a, in a psych ward. But, but that's how I think how people were very pussyfooting around me, except one girl. There was one friend of mine who had been in the hospital herself, and she was just like right on me. I mean, she, was, she wasn't afraid of saying anything. And she just talked to me, and she did talk to me like, oh, i so are you'll okay. You know, it's more like, you know what, you've got to pull yourself up and you're going to get your life going. And she was a real cheerleader, but it was because she had been there and everybody else was so afraid. Well, I think that's, you know, what you're talking about
0: is a support net and maybe had that support net been tighter in terms of all the people in your life there may have been or felt like there was other options and I don't mean to throw anybody under the bus. That's not what I mean, Mm -hmm. but you know, I think this was a long time ago. I mean, I wouldn't have thought to have asked you, were you having thoughts? I don't think that a lot of therapists and maybe not even the psychiatrist checked in to say, you know, I know that sometimes when patients are struggling like this, they have thoughts of killing themselves. Have you ever had those thoughts? And I think that that's kind of what we're hoping with suicide prevention awareness is that we use the language to ask people, are you okay? And if you're not, I can I, you know, we can connect you to resources.
1: Well, and at that time, and i discovered that I really missed out on Hollywood in a life in a long way. I was a great actress. It was very hard for people. And I I the therapists and psychiatrists did not see it coming. And I didn't see it really coming. I I just did everything possible in a very difficult situation of a marriage and having introducing children of of this of my spouse at that time um, into the mix with all kinds of trauma themselves, and it was a very tumultuous time. And I tried to do everything possible, you know, to to make it work for these kids and of course me too. But I just. It was on a mission that I was going to be able to do it, and it was. Just, I got tired, and it was exhausting to fight constantly with a spouse and keep a house together. So I just decided that I couldn't. I didn't have any other option. I, I felt I had no option. It was broken. But yeah, but what a difference now from then. <laughs> it's it's amazing how and it's was in two thousand and three, so it was nineteen years ago, which is a long time ago. So. Your
0: life is in a very different place, and I'm grateful that you're in mine.
1: Uh-huh. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happily married. I have a, a good career. As a, I have a master's in social work from Wayne State University in Detroit, and I've been working in the field for 13 years, and I work with seniors and disabled. I love it. I love the work. I love the company I work for. i my problems with it, but the things are really good. You know, I live in a nice house. I have a HR. I mean, I couldn't really... Ask for better. I have enough money to do things I want to do and travel. And it was a different world, and I was a different person almost. It's been a really interesting way back up. You know, again, for those of us who are
0: clinicians, with the patients sitting in front of us who were seeing signs of struggle, signs of depression, signs of maybe erratic behavior, risk taking behavior, change in behavior, concerns from family, that You know, maybe we need to step back and ask people how they really are. And I think the best way to do that so that it is consistent and evidence-based is using screening tools, standardized screening tools like the Columbia, using like the PHQ-9, the Ask Suicides questionnaire, you know, that specifically asks, are you having thoughts? Are you having thoughts of killing yourself? So that people can be honest if they can be. To say yes or no. And then we can have the conversation. And I think even offering to have someone fill out that questionnaire lets patients know, it's okay for us to talk about this. I'm asking you these questions because I want to know. And so that I hope that by us asking patients, and I know for a lot of therapist asking the question, it's okay. I think people worry sometimes that they're going to, you know, make someone suicidal by asking. And there's lots of evidence that that isn't the case. It's going way back. But do you think that makes sense for clinicians, whether they're
1: doctors, a therapist, a psychiatrist, that it's okay to ask? I think so. And it's different from if a family member asks you or a professional. And I think a professional, it's would be easier to talk to them in a way than your family? There's all kinds of dynamics and all kinds of stuff. And I just remember as a kid being in the pediatrician's office who smoked a cigarette. <laughs> 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 Nurses with mini skirts, but he always talked to mom, not me. I don't ever remember being addressed. I just remember getting shots and poked and prodded and all that stuff that you get when you go to, when you're a little kid the doctor. Now I'm sure the field is a lot different. I worked in a pediatrician's office and I know it's totally different, but it's just, I think asking a child about what's going on, especially if there's like little clues that I would say just for me, I'm a person that gets startled really easily due to probably trauma. And also I was like, I always was biting my nails and kind of holding myself really tight and kind of scared and quiet. Yeah. And, you know, it, to me, those, and it wasn't just because I was in a doctor's office. It just was the way I was around adults, especially men. So anyway, if it, falls, it would with you know, things to think about when you're seeing somebody just like the doctor I had with my psychiatrist, being present, being mindful, not thinking about, oh my God, I know what I have in the next couple hours, but what do I have right in front of me?
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's really important. And, um, you know, again, I think that asking the question, it kind of normalizes it too, like normalizes it in that lots of people feel down, sad, worried, sometimes have thoughts that are scary. It's not uncommon, but it is For some people, it can be really dangerous and lead somewhere, and best to talk about it with someone that can offer you some help. And it's not to say that every professional out there is going to be a suicide expert, a suicidologist, but to know that it's important to have a system in your community so that you know who the psychiatrists are. If you don't have access to child psychiatry where you are, and I know some listeners are in very remote places. You know, most states have child psychiatry access programs. Um, We have MC3 here in Michigan where you can call and I could call and I could say, hey, I've got this patient. I've been seeing them. I'm worried about, you know, depression. I've tried this medication. It's not working. What would you recommend next? So there is help. It may not be being able to send a patient to the psychiatrist, but it is someone to talk through things with you because most of us have the ability to treat certainly you know, mild to moderate anxiety and depression, and to ask the question about suicidal ideation and sort through how bad is this? How bad is the risk? And then to link to those resources. So I hope that with our conversation, you know, that people will take away that, you know, there's reason for hope and so grateful that you're in my life. I can't imagine it otherwise, and that asking is important. And so, this series of conversations that we'll be having this month, September, which is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, we'll have some conversations with organizations to talk about community action, about actions you can take in your practices, and then at the end of the month, something on self-care because, guess what, physicians, clinicians, we're at risk too. So it's hard. I really appreciate you being so honest and open and and just was going to ask, is there anything else that you'd like to tell listeners?
1: Well, I just think that, you know, there are so many great providers out there and more education, the more training, things like this, just make it easier to be able to ask those questions and not worry about that you're saying the right thing or you just know how to do it better. The more you practice, the more you are really addressing those kinds of situations with people that might be at risk. And even if they're not at risk, it doesn't hurt to ask. <laughs> you know, you never know. I was really good about, I'm fine, I'm fine. And all I wasn't. So. Well,
0: and it wasn't that you didn't want help. I mean, people mm-hmm. want to feel better. And we can be part of that that yeah. process of helping people feel better, finding hope, finding that they're not wow. alone. You're not the only one in the dark place that there can be somebody else with you. You know.
1: Yeah. And like right now I have a very good therapist or psychologist and a good psychiatric team and the meditation is, is right. I've been you know stable for a really long time. And I think both of those, the counseling aspect or the therapy aspect and the meditation have worked for me. If I didn't have the meditation, I'd be a mess. If I didn't have counseling, I wouldn't be doing the very best. So they work together for me. Yeah. And I would assume for other people at Liffey, an official.
0: Well, and I'm so grateful for the team of um, providers that have been able to support you and help you be the person that you are because the world's a better place for you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. you. Well, thanks so much for doing this with me today. Again, I, I really appreciate it and I love you. I love you too. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this conversation today. I know that you know that this is near and dear to my heart and that my sister is also near and dear to my heart. I am so grateful that she is in my life and I am so, so grateful that uh, she is in a place of happiness and joy. So my takeaways today, number one, again, thank you to my amazing sister. Number two, for a child experiencing trauma, fight or flight may not be an option only freeze. Number three, be present. Listen to kids. Ask them about themselves and let them be at the center. Be aware and be curious. Number four, when referring patients to counseling, be aware of who you are sending them to, especially if there is a history of trauma or if you are concerned about suicidal risk. Create a community of trauma-informed clinicians who have suicide-specific training. Please check out the next two episodes coming up after this one on system change, coalition building, and collaboration with others if you need ideas about how to build your support system in your community. Number five, my sister was and is incredibly persistent in seeking help. Her bottoming out was not just one thing, but many. She just got tired. Be vigilant for warning signs and I'll put a link in the show notes to warning signs and risk factors for suicide. Number six, for my sister, what helped most were friends and family and a really good team, a caring, compassionate psychiatrist and skillful therapist. Consider the patient's social supports when you identify suicidal ideation. Who are the helpers? And be one of the helpers. Number seven, Patients who are struggling may be great actors. You can't tell by looking who is at risk. Make suicide screening routine. Let patients know that you are willing to hear when they are sad, scared, and exhausted. Number eight, learn more about mental health conditions and suicide prevention. Our patients need us to know. Number nine, be the beacon and offer safe harbor. Please check out the show notes again for the resources and for the crisis contact lines. And I know that this is really hard stuff. This is hard for me to talk about sometimes too. I I do want you to uh, consider listening to some past episodes. Episode 35, 36, 37, and 38 from last May were all centered around suicide prevention. And episode 96 featured leaders in suicide prevention talking about the AAP blueprint on youth suicide prevention. So I hope you will check in the next couple of weeks for related topics and please keep doing what you're doing. Kids need us to be there for them. We need to be the trusted adults in their lives that can really sit and listen to all the things, the good things and the hard things. Please take care of yourselves. I know that these have been really challenging times for clinicians and that many of you are exhausted. If you find yourself struggling, please ask for help. Talk to a trusted partner, your family, your own doctor, but please get help. Thanking you and so grateful for your listenership. Take care and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.